Well, hello there. Welcome to a new episode of the Liberators Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Christian Verwijs. And today's episode is all about product discovery, or how to go from the largest potential product to the smallest valuable product. It's a topic that's very dear to my heart. It's also important because we're doing this at the Liberators right now. We're developing a product called the Scrum Team Survey, and we're applying a lot of what's in this episode and also making some of the mistakes that I'm going to talk about. But before diving into the episode, I want to take a moment for some housekeeping. The first is that I just want to offer an apology for the lack of episodes in recent weeks. As you may have seen, we've published an academic publication together with Professor Daniel Russo, and it's consumed a lot of my time in the evenings and the weekends for the past months and maybe even the past years, but specifically in recent months. And it was very hard to find time also to record new podcasts. Also, As we always say, this episode, this podcast, and all the other content that we create, in fact, the academic publication that we've just done, is all made possible by our patrons. So if you think our work is valuable to the community and to you personally, maybe you want to consider becoming a patron too. You can go to patreon.com slash liberators to decide how much you want to support us with, and we give you all sorts of nice benefits in return. And just so you know, the next episode will talk about this academic publication that I just mentioned. I will give you a non-technical summary of our findings and give you a bit of background on how we actually performed our investigation of what makes Scrum teams more effective. But having settled that, let's move into today's episode. Enjoy! I believe that Scrum is a great way to create awesome products that are relevant, useful, and valuable to their users, while at the same time generating revenue for their creators. Over the years, I've been fortunate enough to have worked on a variety of software products with several Scrum teams. And while some of those products were super successful, others were not, but many of them are still in active use. While it sounds very simple to create a product, everyone who has ever done so knows how difficult it is. It may be easy to look back on the development cycle with the hindsight of what the product actually became, but it's often far murkier and less clear when you're in the middle of it. The biggest challenge is to distinguish clearly between what the product can become one day and what it should incrementally become first to validate the most critical assumptions and to clear the way towards the future. And that presents a major struggle for product owners, for customers, for users, and for developers, as they're all inclined to spend most of their time thinking about the largest potential product instead of the smallest valuable product. This podcast is all about that struggle. For the remainder of this podcast, I want to make sure that we're using the same definition. So when I talk about stakeholder... I really mean people that have a stake in the product either personally because they're investing a lot of time in it or because they're paying for its development in one form or another. Now let's begin with the first question. What is actually a product? While it is easy to get stuck in a lengthy debate over the most accurate definition of product, we think it is more helpful to look at it from the perspective of prospective users. From that perspective, a product is something that you create and provide to people in order to help them address a need they have or solve a problem that they face. Products will vary in how specifically they target certain needs and certain audiences. 
For example, Microsoft Windows is an option for whoever has a computer and is looking for an operating system to install things on. But Apple's GarageBand is more specifically created to help people create music. There's also a transactional aspect to a product. After all, many products are provided in exchange for money, a subscription for personal data, or as part of a larger package. Even products that are solely for internal use are created in exchange for the time and money that is spent on their development. So from here we have two unifying characteristics of a product. The first is that products are defined by the needs they intend to address and the groups of people they intend to address it from. The second is that in exchange for helping users to address a need, there is always some exchange of value between those creating it and those using it, even when that transaction is done through intermediaries. A product can only be successful if it delivers something valuable to its stakeholders and to those creating it. So when is a product valuable enough? In an urge to get it right the first time, teams and organizations often pile features upon features in hopes of pleasing the stakeholders. But this necessarily lengthens the development cycle and it vastly increases the risk of building the wrong product and wasting time and money on unused features or even missing new ideas altogether. At least, if teams do everything in one go and then release the entire product when it's done. There is another way to go about this. Eric Ries popularized the concept of minimum viable products with his book The Lean Startup. In it he makes the case that when your aim is to develop a successful product, you need short development cycles, hypothesis-driven experimentation, and validated learning. In its most basic form, you create a product in small steps, where each step is used to gather feedback from actual stakeholders. This feedback is then used to verify assumptions and to perform experiments. For example, an, an assumption could be a user will like to solve a particular kind of problem with this product or feature. But a potential experiment could be that users prefer variant A of a screen over variant B or variant C of the same screen. When critical assumptions pan out to be false, the product strategy needs to pivot in order to survive. It's important to emphasize that minimum viable product is a plural, it's not singular. Although you may start with a bare minimum of a valuable product, there will be new versions of the product that add new features or extend existing ones. Building a minimum viable product is not an end state, it is a learning process where new versions are continuously being delivered. It's also important to note that a minimum viable product is not a hacked-together, low-quality, barely-working product. It's not a mock-up of what the product will eventually look like. It's also not a prototype that doesn't really work. Instead, it is the smallest vertical slice that you can create to address a potential pain point or need of a stakeholder. This means that it works well, that it looks as nice as necessary, that it's tested and that it does what it is supposed to do. But where do you start? When is a product both as small as possible and still viable enough to address a critical stakeholder need? This challenge of slicing your product is at the heart of incremental product development. One way to understand this challenge of slicing and the potential solutions is with a metaphor. 
And a very common one is the development of a car in response to a need to get somewhere more quickly than walking. Now let's start by saying that this metaphor has some important caveats that we will mention at the end. And I think they will also help us understand the challenge even better. But just bear with me for a moment while I, I explain the metaphor. If your stakeholders want to get somewhere more quickly than walking, there are two ways to go about it. The first involves a clear end state and a path towards it. You can start with a wheel, which could be iteration one, then add another wheel, iteration two, and add a chassis around it for iteration three, and finish by adding windows and doors, which is iteration four. Although we are building the car in steps in iterations, None of the intermediate results can be used by stakeholders. The individual iterations don't deliver any value to the stakeholders and they don't create any value for those creating it. Now an approach that's more minimum viable product oriented could start you out with something smaller that still addresses the need to get somewhere faster than walking. For example, you may want to start with a skateboard. It's definitely not a car, but it does address the stakeholders needs. A point of feedback that we could get based on the minimum viable product is that steering is a bit hard and you bump into things. So in the next iteration, we maybe want to turn the skateboard into a step. Based on a new minimum viable product, a user may learn that it is quite tiring to keep kicking with their feet to move the step forward. So perhaps we can concoct a different way to propel a human from point A to point B, which could lead to a bicycle. Now a bicycle may still be quite tiring for longer distances, making it useful to replace human power with an actual engine. So eventually we may reach the car. Not because that was our initial goal to begin with, but because that turned out to be the best way to address the customer's need. We learned by experimenting that this was the most useful solution. Now this metaphor helps us understand that we have to slice our product in such a way that we can release each slice relatively quickly, and that it delivers value to both the stakeholders and to those creating it. Slicing into components, like the wheels, the car and the engine, isn't helpful, but slicing based on different needs is. Now, as I mentioned before, this metaphor only works on a very high level. It breaks down when you look at it more closely. For example, the learning trajectory isn't realistic and it's quite wasteful. After all, skateboards, steps, bicycles and cars require entirely different machines, different skills, processes and materials to create. Their markets of potential customers and the competitors operating in them are also vastly different. So while the transition from skateboards to steps isn't that huge, switching from steps to bicycles and then to cars moves us into entirely different domains of products and competitors. Still, the key point of this metaphor is that iterative development only works when it delivers incremental products that are both valuable to the stakeholder and to those creating them. No stakeholder will be happy with just a car door, so the challenge is to find creative ways to slice up the needs of your stakeholders and start with the most critical ones first, and then present the smallest possible product to address that need and learn from the feedback that you get. Another key point from the metaphor is that the chances of success are higher when you don't focus on the end state of your product, but on the pain points of the stakeholders that are most immediate. No matter how awesome your product will be, or how cleverly designed it will be, if it doesn't address a clear pain point, it will not be useful. 
A minimum viable product is not something you create with a fully realized end state firmly in mind, but as part of a learning process to measure, learn and discover what your product actually is. How do you identify what needs are actually valuable? A much appreciated complaint by product developers is that customers don't know what they want. And I have certainly made it on several occasions. And yes, while it is true that stakeholders often express their needs in very broad and vague terms, it also means that this kind of research has to be part of development. It is also why we firmly believe that Scrum teams should be involved fully in this process and not just delegate product discovery work to their product owner. The field of customer research is a discipline in its own right, and we cannot possibly do it justice by giving you a few useful takeaways. But I think there are a few things that are always helpful. The first idea is to go on field trips to where users of your product are and to learn from how they work and what they do. You're likely to discover pain points, that these are the things that users try to do or would like to do, but cannot do or are very frustrating and time consuming for them to do. If you make notes of those observations, you can learn what, what needs your product can fulfill. Another idea is to break down large and vague needs into smaller ones by asking questions. For example, if all the steps involved in addressing this, which one is the most useful for you and which ones can we do later? Or of all the steps involved, which is the most frustrating one for you right now? Another idea is to interview your users to learn about their needs. What would they like to do, but cannot do now? What opportunities do they see for useful products? What can competing products not offer that they are looking for? If you have a hunch that you're onto something, but you're not sure if the need is really there, you can always create a quick proof of concept and present it to a small sample of stakeholders. If they see the potential too, you can shore up the quality and the user experience and turn it into an MVP that you release to other stakeholders too. Now, when you use Scrum, a really good idea is to invite users to your sprint reviews. It's actually what the sprint review is for. It also puts pressure on all the right spots. You want the increment to look nice, to work well, and to be free of bugs. And you'll get feedback from real users as an added bonus, which is ultimately the whole point. And finally, an idea is wherever possible to use your own product, eat your own dog food, if you will, to better understand the needs of your product or to discover what's frustrating about using it. This isn't always possible, but sometimes you can find creative solutions to still use your own product. I once worked for a company where we had to create time registration software for our corporate customers. Now, we were not the kind of company where we tracked the time that we all spent on work, but for the duration of development of this product, we actually did use it ourselves just to learn how it worked, how we used it for our own work, and also what was very annoying about it sometimes. And we learned a lot from just our own experience there. Now, all these ideas aside, no matter how thorough your research is, the need to identify remain assumptions until you test them with an actual minimum viable product. For example, maybe there are not enough people with the need that you're looking for to make it feasible for you to create an MVP for it or to learn from it. Or the need may not be big enough for people to make the effort to download or try it. Or you may discover that the need you identified is still too broad and big and needs to be broken down further. 
We are always making these kinds of assumptions when we are building and designing products. This is exactly why we should try to validate these assumptions as quickly as possible. Taking a, taking a lot of time to build the best, most amazing product we can dream of is a waste if our assumptions turn out to be wrong. This doesn't mean that we have to discard all the crazy, cool and amazing ideas that we really think should be part of their product at some point, but we should start with the ideas that we believe will help stakeholders the most right now. What if stakeholders don't like the smallest product? One of the biggest challenges I faced in product development is a strong urge to get it right the first time. And this makes sense. When you launch a product with a lot of fanfare and it fizzles in the market, you've lost money, time and goodwill. With smaller sliced products, there is a perceived risk that users will try it once, not like what they see and never return. So there's an understandable sense of risk involved in big marketing campaigns for minimum viable products. And while that risk exists for small products, it's important to realize that this risk is far greater for huge products where everything is put in to get it right the first time. When that product blows up, you'll have lost a lot more time, money and potential goodwill. I found that there are some helpful strategies to reduce this risk and to facilitate learning. The first is called a soft launch, and this is where you launch your product without fanfare or wide-angle marketing campaigns. By not drawing too much attention, you can safely test your product with a small audience first, or just the people that stumble across it. It offers a great opportunity to see how first adopters use and interact with your product. Once you are confident that it works, you can increase marketing activities alongside that. Another idea is to use a public beta to draw in first adopters and enthusiasts before reaching out to wider audiences. Google has become famous for this by keeping Google Mail in beta for over five years while incrementally expanding functionality. Another example is obvious in computer games, where many games are released and iteratively developed in an open and closed beta before being released to the larger public. This often involves parts of games, like the multiplayer module or a part of the storyline that you can play, but it also helps game developers to determine if people like and understand the game and what needs to be added to make it better. Another idea is to limit the blast radius of your launch by launching a product in specific regions or for subsets of your stakeholders before you scale up to everyone. When the minimum viable product works well in one area, it can be deployed to other areas as well. And finally, don't overpromise what you can deliver eventually. While marketing understandably benefits from a broader picture for your product than it currently is, the learning process of MVPs means that it is also unclear what the product will be one year from now. Let's move into some closing words. Successful agile product development is all about maximizing the work not done for your product. Instead of adding all the bells and whistles that you can possibly think of, you start with the smallest valuable product first and then grow it from there. Instead of the largest potential product, the challenge is to identify the smallest valuable product. Good luck with that challenge. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you for taking time out of a busy day to learn something new. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, maybe you want to review it on the platform that you're listening on. It's a great way for other people to discover this podcast and the other content that we create. And as you may know, these podcasts and all the content are made possible by our patrons. 
If you like it, please consider donating too, which makes it possible for us to create more of this and do the work that we do in the broader community. You can check out patreon.com liberators to find out how to support us. Having said all that, I want to wish you a great day and I hope to see you again in the next episode. Take care.